This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. The way I think I'd like to do things is I think I'd like to spend time on one great miracle and really get into it. And then about two weeks from now, we'll open up into a lot of interesting uh, question and answer on miracles. And I think you'll find that interesting. For example, there are four main words in the Gospels that describe Jesus' miracles. We'll ask questions about that, look into it, and uh, a lot of interesting questions on miracles. And then as we continue through, we'll pick up another good miracle and spend some more time on it. What is the one miracle in Jesus' public ministry that is recorded in all four Gospels? And there's only one. What is the one miracle in Jesus' public ministry that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yes, very good, the feeding of the 5,000. And... Um, we read about that in Matthew 14, 13 through 22, Mark 6, 30 through 45, Luke 9, 10 through 17, and John 6, 1 through 15. I think we'll go through it following John's text, but we'll bring in the other passages as needed. Jesus feeds the 5,000 in the opening 15 verses of John 6. And then after he walks on the water and goes back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, crowds follow him and he says, you've not come to hear my teaching? You've not come even to see the miracles. You've come because your bellies were filled with the loaves. Labor not for the meat that perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. And then he leads into what we call his bread of life discourse that takes up the rest of the chapter. But when he fed the 5,000, it was a beautiful illustration of how he can feed the world spiritually with the gospel. And in that Bread of Life discourse, he says some mighty important things about the sustenance of our souls. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. John 6, 35. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And Peter, in response to the question, will you also go away, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And some six times in the Bread of Life discourse, he tells us that he is the bread that came down from heaven. 
Now, when the true manna came down from heaven, he was born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And so that's very appropriate. And uh, the miracle becomes kind of an illustration of his great spiritual mission to be the bread of life to the world. I'd like to call this section of the Bible, John 6, 1 through 15, a little lad's lunch. A little lad's lunch. And I thought we could divide it into six headings. The setting, the scarcity, the supply, the sufficiency, the surplus, and the sensation. In chapter 6, 1 through 4, we have the setting, the setting for the miracle. Would somebody like to read for us in as loud a voice as you can muster? John chapter 6, 1 through 4. Who would like to read for us John 6, 1 through 4? Thank you. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was not. Thank you, brother. Thank you. We're given the season, the Passover, basically around our late March, early April. And we're given the location. It was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. John ties the gospel down to a calendar and a map. This miracle is a great miracle, but it's grounded in real space and time history. He ties the miracle, he ties the gospel to a calendar and to a map. Well, that's what he does in that great Christmas verse in John. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is God acting in history. Now, we're told that in the setting of this miracle, a great multitude came to him. So when we talk about verifying a miracle, we're not talking about something that's done behind closed doors. We're not talking about perfervid, fanatical followers of some kind of a cult leader who will swear up and down to all kinds of things because they want to believe it happened, it didn't. No, this was done out in the open and thousands bore witness. These miracles are grounded in history. Notice when John gives his statement of purpose in John 20, 30 and 31, he begins by saying, and many other miracles truly did Jesus, which are not written in this book. Jesus did thousands of miracles. Some 35 of them are recorded in detail for us in the four gospels. But he did thousands of miracles. And John said, I had to be very selective. He said, these are written, these seven miracles that I chose, from the turning of the water into wine at Cana of Galilee until the raising of Lazarus from the dead in Bethany of Judea. These seven have I chosen to build my narrative of Jesus' public ministry around. 
And why have I chosen these signs? These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. If you allow the fair impact of the miracles to make a due impression upon you, this will be the conclusion you come to, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and that in truly believing that in your heart, you may have everlasting life. But he says that these many miracles that Jesus recorded, as well as these that he records out of them in the book, were done in the presence of many disciples, many followers. In other words, these can be authenticated. These have eyewitness backing. These can be verified. They're not just made up and passed off on people. And this should be encouraging to you and me. The Bible documents the divine. <laughs> After talking about great miracles that he shared in common with several million Israelites, as Moses is preaching in the last year of his life on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 11, and he talks about the dividing of the water and the plagues, the swallowing up of Korah and his company uh, and uh, Dathan and Abiram uh, when the earth swallowed them up and, he, and, and the manna. He talks about these great public miracles. And he says in 11.7, your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did, appealing to their eyewitness collective national experience. This was a great day of miracles and uh, they were beyond dispute. Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost. There are thousands in the crowd, many of them not all that friendly to the Christian message. But he says to him in Acts 2.22, men and brethren, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. And then he puts the ball in their court, as ye yourselves also know. In other words, it was common knowledge that Jesus did these great miracles. Peter could say it openly, even with people who would do anything to disprove Christianity if they could. And he says, as you yourselves also know. And so I think it's important to know that the Bible records the great acts of God as the plain facts of history. And why that should be encouraging is simply this. Our faith is founded on fact. Mm -hmm. Our faith is founded on fact. Amen. There are good reasons to believe, as Luke puts it, those things which are most surely believed among us. And I think that's encouraging. Now, one of the greatest indications of authenticity is what we could call, humanly speaking, God who wrote the Bible, you know, knows how everything interconnects. But from a human standpoint, one of the greatest signs of authenticity is undesigned coincidences. For example, things that when you look at different accounts, they all wonderfully blend together. When Jesus fed the 5,000, according to John 6, 4, it was at Passover. We know that that is uh, in the early spring, around late March, early April in our calendar. And we are told, I believe it's by Matthew, that they were made to sit down on the green grass. 
in most of Palestine, that's about the only time of year the grass is really green in the early spring. You get further into the dry season and it gets very parched and dry. And so that makes sense. If it's Passover, you would expect the grass to be green that they sat down upon. Uh, excuse me, I think it's Mark that tells us it was uh, green grass. Uh, but then some months later, when Mark's recording the feeding of the 4,000, he says they sat down on the ground, but he doesn't mention the green grass. Because at that time of the year, you wouldn't have had green grass who had just been ground. So these are kind of interesting, undesigned coincidences in the historical narrative that just show that the stories beautifully blend without trying to force them to agree. Mark tells us just how busy Jesus was at this time in his life. He went up to a mountain trying to kind of get alone with God and give his disciples some rest. But when the crowds knew that he was there, they just came from everywhere. And they had to put off their time of rest a little bit. Um, though Jesus wanted them to rest. Would somebody read for us Mark chapter 6, verses 31 through 34? It ties in here. Mark 6, 31 through 34. Thank you. Yes, sir. And the people saw them departing, and many knew them, and ran up thither out of all cities, and out went them, and came together unto them. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. Thank you. You might say that this was the quest for rest. <laughs> Jesus wanted to have them come apart for a while and rest because many were coming and going and they had no leisure so much as to eat. They couldn't even steal enough time to quickly gobble a little food down. <laughs> and, uh, and then when the crowds came from everywhere, they still put off the need at rest and Jesus ministered. But he pointed out the importance of getting rest in the midst of a busy schedule. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us, and when you consider how great the work of God is, we should want to abound in it, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I think it was J. Vernon McGee said that the only command that Jesus ever gave that the church has faithfully obeyed down through the centuries is uh, sleep on. Uh, and uh, we need to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Um, but there is a time for needed rest Come ye yourselves apart into a desert or solitary place and rest a while, Mark 6.31. Jesus knew what it was like to have constant demands made upon his busy schedule. And so do his disciples. Vance Havner famously said, either come apart or you'll come apart. <laughs> After preaching to 25,000 people, Spurgeon returned home and slept 36 hours straight. <laughs> there is a lot in the ministry that can quickly wear 
the best intended, hardest working people out. And there is that need for rest and the quiet place, which will renew us to go back and abound in the work of the Lord. Well, we read about the setting, now we have the scarcity. There was so little food available to feed this vast multitude. The scarcity, John 6, 5 through 7. Would somebody read that for us, please? John 6, 5 through 7. Uh, Kevin, okay, great, thanks. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Thank you. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Thank you, dear brother. How often we are prepared for our work by being compelled to study the inadequacy of our resources. So we'll know we could never do it, it's gotta be God. How can we feed a multitude like this with what we've got? F.B. Meyer said that, by the way. How often we are prepared for our work <laughs> by having to realize how unprepared we were and uh, look to God to make up the difference. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Now Jesus, he might ask leading questions to draw things out of people, but Jesus never asked for advice. <laughs> I think of that verse in Isaiah 40, verse 13, who have directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor have taught him. Verse six says, even though he tested Philip, when should we find bread to feed this multitude? He himself knew what he did. He himself knew what he would do. He was simply testing Philip and his faith. In a crisis, Jesus always knew what to do. No one is needed to advise him who is the wisdom of God. But I'm so glad as 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, he is of God made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, Philip did the calculating and said even 200 penny worth of purchasing bread would not be sufficient to feed this vast throng. Now, the word penny here translates a Greek word denarius, D-E-N-A-R-I-U-S. And a denarius was the average daily wage of a farmer or a day laborer. And so 200 penny worth or 200 denarii would be equivalent to the average person back then earning salary for 200 days. Well, when you allow vacation time and the Sabbath day and things like that, uh, that's probably getting pretty close to around three quarters of a year's salary. Philip said, even if we had all that money, which we don't, he said that wouldn't be sufficient that everybody could get even a little. But Jesus had no problem with how to deal with this. I'd like to bring in a parallel passage at this point. Who would read for us Matthew 14, 15 through 18? 
Matthew 14, 15 through 18. We'll see how Jesus interacted with his disciples and how he was going to handle this. Would somebody read that for us, please? Okay, thank you. I love that sweet simplicity. They don't need to go away. Feed them. We have hardly any resources. The crowd's vast. We have a real problem. What are we going to do, Lord Jesus? Send them away so that uh, they can go into surrounding towns and villages and get sustenance. And the Lord Jesus says, they don't need to depart. You feed them. Huh? <laughs> and then when they said, all we got is five loaves and two fishes, Jesus said, bring them hither to me. I think it was when the epileptic demon-possessed boy uh, couldn't be healed by the disciples after Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus said, bring them hither to me. If we take what we got, no matter how small it might seem, and we bring it to Jesus, it's wonderful how adequate it can be. Amen. And I love that sublime simplicity. They need not depart. Give them to eat. Bring those loaves and fishes hither to me. An impossible problem is no problem for Jesus. I like that song that says, the waves that are over your head are under his feet. Isn't that wonderful to know? And I love the closing verse of John 16, verse 33, where he says, these things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, pressure, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. What might be a really big problem for me doesn't have to be a big problem for the Lord Jesus. And then we come to the supply, verses eight and nine, the supply. How will this need be met? And would somebody read for us? Yes, sir, thank you. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here which hath five holy and two small fishes. What are they? Thank you. What rather are these in the hands of one who has the whole world in his hands? Might be a better way to ask the question. In reading about the feeding of the 5,000, we are looking at what one writer calls the mathematics of a miracle. The mathematics of a miracle. Five barley loaves, two small fishes. What are they among so many? How are we going to possibly make these stretch? But we have the mathematics of a miracle. Missionary to England, Amanda Baker, has said more than once that God's arithmetic is different than ours. She says, it's amazing how God calls you to do something 
and you wonder how in the world are you going to have the resources to even get close to pulling it off. But God's arithmetic is different than ours, and it's amazing how he provides wherever he chooses the guide. God doesn't need a lot, just what we got. I think of that, and this is a pretty favorite preaching text among preachers. It's been my experience. Exodus 4.2, at the burning bush, God says, what is that in thine hand? And Moses replies, a rod. And God says, take that rod and you're gonna do all kinds of miracles with it and you're gonna bring my people out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage from the most powerful empire in the world. And so preachers like to preach on that text sometimes. What is that in thine hand? Whatever you have, give it to God. If it's only a little lad's lunch of five barley loaves and two small fishes, give it to God and see what he can do with it. Give your all, albeit small, into the hands which made heaven and earth. And trust the five barley loaves and two small fishes of your talents into the capable hands of the master. And then watch as he takes and blesses and breaks and distributes and multiplies. And thus, many, many souls are fed through your life. God spoke the whole world into existence. He doesn't need what I got. He simply needs me. Dr. Tom Malone, who pastored for many years at Emanuel Baptist Church in Pontiac Mission, tells that they had a uh, supper at church on Wednesday night where they would gather together and fellowship some, and then they would, after the meal, go out and do soul winning. And he said that there was one man in line for food. He didn't recognized the man as having been there before. And the man was kind of jittery and fidgety and, and uh, he looked kind of different. And Dr. Malone started to say to himself, uh, I wonder whether we should maybe talk to him and tell him it might not be best to go out on visitation. He, he looked kind of strange. But the man was there and he was sincere. And Tom Malone said, I'm glad I didn't do that because in the next few months, he won hundreds of people to Christ. <laughs> uh, sometimes a person might not seem to have much to offer, but if he gives God his heart and God's in it, it's amazing what he can do, um, sometimes through unlikely means. What was Gideon? What was Gideon? Well, according to Judges 7.13, Gideon was merely a cake of barley that tumbled into the host of Midian. Now back then, generally speaking, rich folks ate wheat bread and poor folks ate barley bread. And what was Gideon? He was merely a cake of barley tumbling into the host of Midian. His 300 soldiers outnumbered 450 to one. <laughs> How could he ever go up against the Midianites? Well, we know what Jesus can do with barley loaves. And we know what Jesus did with Gideon. Do you know what Jesus can do with you? 
the God that made everything out of nothing wants to make something out of you. I came across, speaking about how God can multiply to meet our need, I came across this beautiful story called How Much Does Prayer Weigh? And if you'll bear with me, I know this is a rather long reading, but I'd like to read it to you. It's in the book, The Living Bread, pages 30 and 31. How much does prayer weigh? The only man I ever knew who tried to weigh one still does not know. This is a true story, by the way. Once upon a time, he thought he did. That was when he owned a little grocery store on the west side. It was the week before Christmas after the World War. A tired-looking woman came into the store and asked him for enough food to make up a Christmas dinner for her children. He asked her how much she could afford to spend. She answered, my husband was killed in the war. I have nothing to offer but a little prayer. This man confesses that he was not very sentimental in those days. A grocery store could not be run like a breadline. So he said, write it on a paper and turned about his business. To his surprise, the woman plucked a piece of paper out of her bosom and handed it to him over the counter and said, I did that during the night watching over my sick baby. The grocer took the paper before he could recover from his surprise and then regretted having done so. For what would he do with it? What could he say? Then an idea suddenly came to him. He placed the paper without even reading the prayer on the weight side of his old-fashioned scales. He said, we shall see how much food this is worth. To his astonishment, the scale would not go down when he put a loaf of bread on the other side. To his confusion and embarrassment, it would not go down, though he kept on adding food, anything he could lay his hands on quickly, because people were watching him. He tried to be gruff, and he was making a bad job of it. His face got red, and it made him angry to be flustered. So finally he said, well, that's all the scales will hold anyway. Here's a bag. You'll have to put it in yourself. I'm busy. With what sounded like a gasp of a little sob, she took the bag and started packing in the food, wiping her eyes on her sleeves every time her arm was free to do so. He tried not to look, but he could not help seeing that he had given her a pretty big bag and that it was not quite full. So he tossed the large cheese down the counter, but he did not say anything, nor did he see the timid smile of grateful understanding which glistened in her moist eyes at this final betrayal of the grocer's crusty exterior. When the woman had gone, he went to look at the scales, scratching his head and shaking it in puzzlement. Then he found the solution. The scales were broken. The grocer is an old man now, his hair is white, but he still scratches it in the same place and shakes it slowly back and forth with the same puzzled expression. He never saw the woman again. And come to think of it, he had never seen her before either. Yet for the rest of his life, he remembered her better than any other woman in the world and thought of her more often. He knew it had not been just his imagination, for he still had the slip of paper upon which the woman's prayer had been written. Please, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> the source of supply was in himself. 
not merely in what was given to him. He would go on to say, I am the bread of life. In himself there is bread enough and to spare for the unfed millions who are still spending their money for that which is not bread. Well, we won't have time to complete the next section, but maybe we can ease into it. We then have the sufficiency, the sufficiency, John 6, 10 and 11. Would somebody read that for us, please? The sufficiency. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat in the number of 5,000 and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as men as they would. Oh, thank you so much. When it comes to eating, have you ever noticed how the atmosphere can add a lot to the dining experience? You know, we read of the trees that God planted in the Garden of Eden, that they were not only good for food, but pleasant to the sight. And uh, God appreciates, and we should appreciate, the setting as well as the actual food. I, I think Jesus kind of wanted to have a nice setting here. Uh, it was our grandson's birthday. We wanted to treat him to a nice restaurant. His, uh, one of his favorite restaurants was Abuelo's in the Greenbrier Mall. So we drove to the Greenbrier Mall to Abuelo's. Um, we like Abuelo's. I, Mexican is not my favorite or Joyce's, but, that, but they had some very good food there. And we wanted to do it for, for uh, our, son, our grandson David. But the atmosphere in that place of all the pictures on the wall and the columns, it adds to the good cuisine. And so we were looking forward to a good dining experience. Um, we drove up to the restaurant and the parking was great. There was hardly uh, any cars, only to find out that it closed down a few months before. But anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but it's nice. It's nice when you can um, eat and there's a beautiful atmosphere. Um, uh, I'm still a little crushed with the uh, Golden Corral that closed down on Kempsville and the Golden China Buffet that closed down on um, Battlefield, but we won't go into that now. But uh, uh, the atmosphere adds so much to the meal. Mark emphasizes the fact that they sat down by companies, Mark 6, 39 and 40. That is, each of the groups of people which had come from a certain section sat down together, apparently. They had been distinguished by robes of a certain color from their area. Everything our Lord did was decently in an order. Each little group was color on the background of the green grass. J. Vernon McGee says, I'm of the opinion that if you could have been on the hill on the opposite side from where those people were sitting, you would have seen something that would have been as beautiful as a patchwork quilt. All the different colors in the groups, people from their different neighborhoods from the country on the beautiful green grass. It must have been a beautiful sight. Uh, the word prosia, or the plural prosigi, by companies or in ranks. They sat down in companies or in ranks. But the word prosia means a garden bed or a plot of ground. The idea in the text is that these fifties and hundreds form separate plots as in a garden. And in all likelihood, their many colored clothes look like beds of gorgeous flowers. 
Not only did you have great wholesome food, but you had a beautiful setting. The little lad comes home and his mom says, sweetheart, supper's ready. And he says, I'm not hungry. And his mom says, you're not hungry, you're always hungry. But he had more than sufficient from what Jesus did with his lunch that day. Our grandson's father, we call him Big Dave. And uh, his dear mother just went home to be with the Lord in December. But she told me something and I wasn't sure I heard it right. Now, Big Dave right now is about six foot, five and a half, 360 pounds, he's still really big. When he was growing up, he was slim, but boy, he could pack the food away. And uh, Mama Donna told us, and I, I'd rather believe it. She said she had to go out and get a separate job and work outside the home just so she could feed him when he was growing up. But this little boy came home and he was full and uh, Jesus gave more than was sufficient. It says in John 6, 11 and verse 23 that he gave thanks for the food before he distributed it. Twas springtime when he blessed the bread and was harvest when he broke. The miracle happened so quickly compared to the normal processes of agriculture. The normal Jewish blessing that Jesus may have used was, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who causes to come forth bread from the earth. I believe that Jesus sets an example of saying grace before we eat. Heard about this old farmer who came in from the country and uh, stopped at a fast food restaurant. He bowed his head and said grace, and then a few ill-mannered youth from a table across from him, and one of them tried to give him a hard time and said, hey, old man, does everybody thank God for the food where you come from? And I love the old farmer's answer. He said, the pigs don't. <laughs> and we need to be grateful for what God has given to us. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.